Good morning, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the teaching team for Women in the Word. Although um, I haven't had a chance to be up here yet, I'm excited to be here. Um, for those of you that are baseball fans, um, I think they call me the closer. So uh, <laughs> hopefully I'll do a better job than what happened with the Rangers this year. I think uh, his closer... Uh, there's closer struggle just a little bit. Thanks for being here for this whole journey with Daniel. We've been together. Uh, this is week number 10 in our journey with Daniel. Hopefully you have an outline and some verses. I have to tell you that I just got back from a journey of my own. I had the opportunity to go to England for just a few days to visit uh, my son and daughter-in-law who live in England now. I just got off the plane. Um, in, in my world, it's now five in the afternoon, according to my jet lag. But I'm glad to be here. I hate to miss women in the word. Um, it's the highlight of my week. But the other reason I'm glad to be here, I have to share with you, is this time when we were in England, my husband decided that instead of riding the train, like we've done every other time to sightsee when we've been visiting our kids, is that this time we were going to rent a car. Now, um, those of you that have had some experience in England know that um, all things English when it comes to cars and traffic are really different. Of course, they drive on the left-hand side of the road. The cars have a right-hand drive, and none of the traffic rules are really the same. They don't have stop signs. They have this little triangle in the road. They don't have yield signs. They have this tiny little sign that says, give way. And every time I saw that, I would think, give away? What are they giving away? And then I would think, oh my gosh, we're supposed to be looking for a car here. Um, But really, the most difficult thing about the whole driving experience, and I have to give my husband credit here, he was a champ. He drove like he had been in England all of his life. He hardly scared me at all, which was a good thing. Um, But there was an interesting thing that they do in England. They don't have traffic lights. They have, except maybe in London, but for the most part, they don't have intersections like we do where everybody waits for the red light. They have something called roundabouts. Now, in London, they actually call the big roundabouts circuses, which is a good name for them because it is, from an American perspective, it is a free-for-all, getting on and off those roundabouts. Um, And so I had a little bit, uh, I was a little bit anxious when we were getting in the car, uh, and it is true. The one thought that came to me as I climbed in this car was not, oh my goodness, if something happens, I'm going to leave my kids and my grandkids without a mother or a grandmother, I thought, if something happens, I know Deb Haygood will finish the Bible study for me the last two weeks. <laughs> okay, this is where my, I'm focused on women in the work. But the good news is my husband had a secret weapon. He had this little GPS with him, which was like this miniature prophet in our car because <laughs> we would be driving down the road and it would say roundabout 2.5 miles, enter and then exit at the second exit. It was fabulous. And it would keep saying it until we got to the roundabout and through the roundabout. And the few times that we couldn't figure out how to get off the roundabout, it would very calmly say, continue on the roundabout, exit please, exit please. (laughs) Which is great because I was screaming, get off, just get off somewhere, just get off. 
But so you can see why I'm very glad to be here and why I'm grateful that we had that little prophet in the car with us. It got us where we needed to go and it got me back to Texas. This morning we're going to take on something that I think is even more challenging than driving English. And that is Daniel's fourth and final vision that we're going to begin to look at here concerning the nation of Israel. In the last nine chapters, Daniel has been given progressive revelation by God through dreams and visions concerning God's program for the future of the nation of Israel. And he's really been told what the scope of Israel's battles are going to be in the next few hundred years and even beyond that. Chapters 7 and 8 have given us a great historical perspective, a picture of the nations and rulers that are going to dominate Israel's future. And God has progressively revealed a little bit more in each one of those revelations for Daniel. Now, last week in chapter 9, we learned um, a timeline. God gave Daniel a timeline, 69 weeks or 476 years until the first coming of the Messiah. And then, sometime in the far future, there was going to be one more seven-year period. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that final vision of seven years next week. But this week, we're going to start with chapter 10, and we're going to take a look at what God has to tell Daniel this week. So turn to chapter 10 with me. And let's read verses 1 through 3. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned and for three weeks I ate no choice food. Meat or wine touched my lips. No meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until three weeks were over. Daniel is actually 85 years old here. It's 536 B.C. in the third year of Cyrus. Now, we've talked about Cyrus a lot. Cyrus is the Persian king that ushers in the rule of the Medes and the Persians over Babylon. But more importantly, Cyrus is the king that frees the Jewish exiles, writes the decree that allows them to return home and reoccupy their homeland. Because of Cyrus, Israel's captivity has ended, and Jerusalem is being reoccupied again by their own people. But Daniel does not return to Jerusalem with the other exiles. And there was a lot of conversation, uh, if you read about this, uh, about why Daniel didn't go back, probably it was because he was 85 years old and the journey would have been too difficult. His home, since he was 16 years old, had been right there in Babylon. So probably because of his age, Daniel did not return. Now in these first three verses, we learn that um, Daniel received a revelation from God that was about a great war. Daniel had actually retired from the service of the king, from serving with King Cyrus in the first year of Cyrus's reign. But we see something here interesting. Even though Daniel has retired from his public service, he has not retired from kingdom service. He is God's prophet, as chapter 10 opens up in his 85th year. He's not living on spiritual social security saying, hey, I've done my part and I am just going to sit back and reap the benefits. No, he's still on the front lines of kingdom work. And in light of this latest revelation that he's received about a great war, um, 
he's not celebrating the fact that Israel's returning home to be with the exiles. You'd think um, at 85 and Israel is going back home that he would be um, having a party here, but he's not. What we see... Because he has a great love for God at the age of 85, and he has a great love for God's people after all these years of being God's prophet, Daniel's response to the revelation that there is going to be a great war in Israel's future, Daniel's response is to go to his first love, to go straight to God himself. He mourns and he fasts and he prays. Daniel is most certainly grieved. And he's grieved over the fact that even though Israel, his people, are free to return home to Jerusalem, any hope that Daniel might have had that Israel would now face a future of prosperity and peace as they return home has been shattered by all that Daniel knows as God's prophet. And as he gets this fourth revelation about yet another great war, more information about what he's already um, heard, his response to that hard truth that Israel's future is not one of peace, Daniel's response is not anger. It's not mistrust of God. It's not abandonment of his ministry as God's prophet in the kingdom of God. Daniel's response is to set his mind to gain understanding for God. He goes determinedly to God, and he humbles himself before God. More than ever, at the age of 85, Daniel's response to learning the truth about Israel's future is to go to his God. It reveals that his first priority at this stage in his life remains God and God's people. It's never been any different for Daniel. It's been a lifelong journey to have God as his first priority. Let's read some more. Verses 4 through 12 in chapter 10. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the Tigris, of the great river the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it. But such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed... Consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. And then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God. Your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. You know, verse 12 tells us here that Daniel has humbled himself before God. He has determinedly set his mind to understanding after receiving this troubled revelation. And right here we have God's response to that in Daniel's life. We have God responding to Daniel's plea for understanding, and he does it with divine visitors. Daniel is standing on the banks of the Tigris River. He's not alone. He apparently has companions that are there with him. And he looks up and he sees this 
absolutely stunning, remarkable sight. A man dressed in linen, he has a belt of gold. His body is like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like burning torches, and his voice, his voice sounds like a multitude. Now, his friends don't see this vision, but it was interesting to me that even though they don't see anything, just being, breathing the same air that apparently this man was in causes them to tremble. You know that expression, the hair stands up on the back of your neck? I bet the hair stood up on their head. I bet this was uh, an increased reaction to just being in the air that this man was in. And they flee. They flee and they leave Daniel there. Now, Daniel actually sees the man, and his response is even greater. He turns pale. He loses control of his muscles. He falls on the ground. And when the man speaks, he falls into a deep sleep. Now, there's some discussion among the theologians as to who this man is here in uh, Daniel's fourth vision. There were some that felt like this was the same angel, the angel Gabriel, that had come to Daniel in chapter 9 and given him... um, that information. Uh, but based on Daniel's reaction to him and based on the similarity between the description that the Apostle John gives of the pre-incarnate Christ in Revelation, I think we have a good case here for understanding this to be the pre-incarnate Christ that has come in response to Daniel's determined prayers. Read, uh, Get your verse sheet out with me. And read on your verse sheet. This is John's description of Christ in Revelation 1.13. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a gold sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters." And Revelation 1.17 is John's reaction to this man when he saw him. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So this man described here in this remarkable passage that um, has come in response to Daniel's prayers looks similarly to the same man that John saw in the Revelation. And I think based on that, we are probably on pretty solid ground uh, to think that it is Christ himself. But if this is Christ that has come, he hasn't come alone. He's come with some companions, and those companions are angels. Uh, And it's one of those angels that begins to speak to Daniel in verse 10. Now, a couple of weeks ago in chapter 4, Vanita talked us about... uh, God's handwriting on the wall for the wicked Belteshazzar. And she talked about how the handwriting uh, really revealed God's evaluation of Belteshazzar. He was weighed and measured and certainly rejected. Uh, In verse 11, Daniel has the opposite experience here of being evaluated by God. Because the angel tells him, the angel that begins to speak in in verse 10, tells him, you are highly esteemed. We know that Daniel did enjoy a good reputation among men, but this is God's estimate of him. These chapters in uh, Daniel, these last chapters in Daniel were actually written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew words here mean man of preciousness. That is God's estimate of Daniel. Man of preciousness. 
And Daniel is obviously precious to God, not simply because he's a man of integrity or courage, which is what we've seen of him in these last nine chapters. He's a tall tree in the forest of men, as Ted likes to say when he talks about men. But truly, Daniel is precious to God because it's obvious that God and the people of God have always been precious to Daniel. That's what God knows about Daniel's heart. It's obvious to God that God and the people of God have always been precious to Daniel. God has been first in Daniel's heart throughout his life. And we see that same thing here at the age of 85. God is still first in Daniel's heart. And God values that in Daniel's life. And he values that in a remarkable way here in these verses as we see God's response to Daniel. The first thing that we see is that Daniel's words were heard from the first day he spoke them to God according to verse 12. When you are precious to God, he hears your prayers. And not only were they heard, but Christ himself came in response to his words. Daniel is precious to God. When Daniel is overwhelmed by God's response to him, overwhelmed by this vision of Christ and the angels that have accompanied him, he doesn't receive a rebuke from God when he falls on the ground pale and unable to really uh, speak to the angel at all. But instead, we see that God personally strengthens Daniel. Look in verses 17 through 19 with me of chapter 10. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? This is Daniel speaking. My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. And again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Don't be afraid, O man highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong now. Be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. A man or a woman who is precious to God need never to have fear when they are in the presence of God because God himself will strengthen you. Daniel also receives direct answer uh, to his prayer for understanding here in verse 14 where the angel says to him, I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in a future, in a time yet to come. So if we look carefully at Daniel's response, um, to God and this prophecy, we see that Daniel's first and best response when he was upset by the revelation that Israel was going to face a great war and not peace and prosperity in her, in her future, his best response had been to humble himself and to go directly to God for understanding. And as a response, as a result, God's response to him was that he was heard and he was valued and he was strengthened and he was enlightened by his divine visitors. Psalm 147, 11 on your verse sheet says, The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. That's certainly a description of Daniel. His hope was not in what he learned about Israel's future. His hope was in God's unfailing love. And Psalm 37, 23 says, If the Lord delights in a man's way... He makes his steps firm. Along with God's response to Daniel in these verses in chapter 10, we also see something really extraordinary here. 
As the angel talks to Daniel, he does this unique thing. He pulls back that spiritual curtain that separates our world from the spiritual world that truly does exist all around us, lady. The one that separates us. And Daniel gets an unprecedented look into the spiritual battles that are really going on around us. Um, where God directs human governments and raises up kings and kingdoms as a result of these spiritual battles. Look at verse 13 with me. And it says, but the prince, and this is the angel talking, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now, that's it. Verse 13. There's probably good reason to believe that the angel that is talking here uh, in the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ is the angel Gabriel. Uh, He was the communicator of the last two visions that Daniel had, as well as some other significant um, announcements in the scriptures. If you remember, it was the angel Gabriel that came to Mary to tell her that she was expecting the Messiah. This angel apparently has great power, which we see here, and that would be true of Gabriel because he was a prominent angel in the heavenly realm. Gabriel gives us an interesting look at something we don't normally have knowledge of, and that is the spiritual battle that is really going on around us, uh, and we're oblivious to it. In verse 13, he tells Daniel that even though he was sent immediately in response to Daniel's prayers, he had to fight his way there. It wasn't an easy trip. For 21 days, he battled a satanic representative assigned to Persia. And that delays him getting to Daniel. And the battle went on for three weeks. And uh, apparently what ended it at three weeks was that Michael, one of the chief angels in the angelic realm, came to Gabriel's existence. This is actually uh, probably one of the most unique passages in all of the scriptures. And it gives substance to the fact that we live in a world where there is a real spiritual battle raging behind behind the spiritual curtain. Paul tells us the same thing in Ephesians, Ephesians 6 on your verse sheet. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. We see a little bit more of this spiritual battle that um, Paul affirms is going on around us in verses 20 and 21. Read those with me. And so Gabriel says here, So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. So not only did Gabriel have to fight his way to Daniel, but he's going to be leaving again because he has another battle to fight. Apparently, Persia has its own um, demonic representative that uh, is assigned to the country of Persia uh, for the next 200 years of Persian rule. Uh, These countries that have influence over Israel, apparently from this passage of scripture, give us some insight into the fact that if there's a country that has um, any influence over Israel, there may be a demonic representative that um, is all about that country as it 
impacts Israel. An angelic battle, according to Gabriel, is also going to be fought after the Persian uh, rule ends and the Greek rule begins. There's going to be a demonic representative from Greece, and Gabriel will fight that battle also. But even in the midst of this unbelievable look at the spiritual realm, as we peek behind that curtain, Daniel gets some encouragement because in verse 21, we learn that Israel has its own powerful protector. It is not simply at the mercy of these demonic representatives that uh, oversee countries that influence Israel. Israel has the archangel Michael as its powerful protector in these heavenly conflicts. Greece and Persia and every other power that oppose Israel may have their own demonic representative, but Israel has the archangel Michael as her very own prince. God's plans for Israel's future may be opposed in the heavenly realm, but they will not be stopped. Psalm 33, 10 on your verse sheet affirms that for us. The Lord foils the plans of nations. He thwarts the purposes of the people. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generation. Now, we've already talked about the fact that God's program for Daniel had been one of progressive revelation. He's told him a little bit more in each one of these visions about Israel's future and the historic details that are going to accompany that. And in chapter 11, as we move towards chapter 11, God really does go deeper with Daniel and gives him a great number of details concerning Israel's future. Let's look, uh, beginning in verse 2, and... This is near future prophecy. You know how we've talked about there's near future and far future prophecy? We're going to look at some of near future prophecy here, beginning in verse 2. Now I tell you the truth, three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. And then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power to be exercised. But his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Now, this is the angel's detailed accounting of the historical events that are going to lead up to the first coming of Christ. And he emphasizes right here in verse 2, for Daniel's sake, and certainly, I think, for our sake, that this is the truth. It may be more information than you had in the past, Daniel, but this is the truth. The angel starts with the Medo-Persian Empire, which Daniel has already learned about. He learned about it back in chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the statue. There was Babylon, then there was the Medo-Persian Empire, then of course there was Greek and then Greece, and then there was Rome. So he starts here in the Medo-Persian Empire with the kings of Persia. Um, And we learn that there's going to be four more kings in the Persian Empire after Cyrus. And the last one of those Persian kings um, is going to be Xerxes, who actually we know from history attacks Greece with a huge army in 480 B.C. Now, the amazing thing about near future prophecy is for Daniel, 
All of these things that he's being told are two, three, four hundred years in the future. He's in 536 B.C., so 480 B.C., which is when Xerxes attacks Greece with a a huge army, is 50 years in the future. And we're going to walk forward all the way to 164 B.C., probably. That's the future for Daniel. But for us... We have the great vision of history, don't we? And we can look back at history and know that these things that Daniel is being told uh, as future prophecy is in the history books for us. So the things that I'm telling you right now, I know, have been compared with history and proven true. Xerxes attacks as the last Persian king, and he attacks Greece with a huge army in 480 B.C. The mighty king of verse 3 that Daniel learns about here is going to prove to his, from history to be Alexander the Great. And his attack on the Persian Empire actually just comes uh, largely in retaliation for what Xerxes had attacked Greece, earlier attacks. And verse 3 tells us that Alexander the Great, this is a king who has great power and he does what he pleases. Um, And history proves this out because it only takes Alexander five years to conquer the entire ancient world. Now, Alexander dies a premature death. I think he was about 33 years old. He dies in Babylon and he doesn't leave any descendants. He had had a son when he was young, but the child died uh, before he grew up. So Alexander dies without any descendants. So his kingdom is parceled out between his four main generals. So the Greeks, which overtake the Persians with Alexander, uh, now the Greek kingdom is parceled out to these four leading generals. And that's exactly what the angel is telling Daniel in verse 4 when he says his empire will be broken up and parceled out to the four winds. It will not be given to his descendants. He tells Daniel that about Alexander the Great, 220 years before it happened. It will be uprooted and given to others. Um, Now, beginning in verse 5, if you did your homework, you know that the angel begins a detailed accounting of what the angel calls the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And we're going to read a few verses of that, beginning in verse 5. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger, and he will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those last days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, their valuable articles of silver and gold, and carry them off to Egypt. For some years he will leave the kings of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but he will retreat to his own country. We're not going to read all of this. It goes back and forth between the kings of the north and the kings of the south. Um, The important thing here is to know that the historical detail that is given clear through to verse 35 in chapter 11 
is totally profound, and it accurately recounts the history of the ongoing conflicts between two of those four divisions of the Greek Empire from the death of Alexander the Great, which was in 323 B.C., to the reign of the Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes, um, beginning in 175 B.C., Uh, When Alexander's kingdom was divided into those four divisions, um, there was a ruler named, uh, a general named Ptolemy I Soter, who became the ruler over Egypt and uh, some surrounding territory in the south. In the five verses, in the verses between um, verse 5 and 12, what we have is the dominance of his kingdom, of Ptolemy I um, Soter and all the Ptolemic rulers after him. Uh, Egypt dominates in these verses. Now, there was another general, um, Alexander Seleucus I Nicator, became the ruler of Syria at that time and all the adjacent territories. And beginning, from the beginning of the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids in the north, two of these four generals, these two uh, kingdoms warred with each other. And that's what this conflict is all about. Um, the terms kings of the north and kings of the south really are relation or how they are related to the nation of Israel. The Syrian kingdom is north of the nation of Israel. The um, Egypt Egypt is, of course, south of the nation of Israel. And the Holy Land stood between these two great and uh, powers that disliked each other so much. And they became territory that each one of these kingdoms coveted. They wanted that territory that uh, lied between the two simply so they could encroach upon the other one. You can imagine if the king of the north had taken over the Holy Land completely, he would border Egypt and he would have a direct path into Egypt. And the same thing is true with the Ptolemies. They wanted a direct path into Syria. The verses here in chapter 11 describe this conflict in detail. And you have a chart that you hand, that was handed out with your verses that really go back and tie all the kings of the Ptolemic Empire and all the kings of the Seleucid Empire verse by verse who they are. And I thought it was so interesting as I studied this because in verse 17 of chapter 11, it talks about how the king of the north gave his daughter to the king of the south. And of course, he was trying to uh, form an alliance there. And that was Cleopatra. And so if you ever go back and and study Cleopatra, you know that she was given in marriage to the king of the Pharaoh, is what they're called. And that's how Cleopatra came to be in Egypt, is she was part of all of this. Now... There are 135 prophetic statements in these verses that have been proven through history to be true, which is incredible. 135 prophetic statements. But that's really not the most important thing here. The most important thing here is that these verses actually set the stage for the events that have to do with the second coming of the Messiah. Let's read uh, verses 28 through 31 together.
The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. His Armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. And then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. In verse 28, Gabriel, the angel, actually lays out here for Daniel uh, the purpose of all this historical detail. It sets the stage for the persecution of the Jewish people through the last Seleucid leader, which is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And that is a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. Remember, this is near future prophecy. It happens before the first coming of Christ. And yet, we're going to have a huge persecution of the Jewish nation here before the first coming of Christ. What happens is that Antiochus, um, in verse 28, uh, in his first campaign to conquer Egypt... Um, in 169 BC, Antiochus returns home. He has a little bit of a successful campaign against Egypt, but he returns home through Israel. And for some reason, uh, he decides to plunder it. And we know from history books, uh, we don't know exactly why he set his heart against the Holy Covenant, but for some reason he did. Uh, we know from the history books that during this time, he killed 80,000 men, women, and children in Jerusalem. He desecrated the temple, and then he was gone. He returned home. But unfortunately, he was not done with having his heart set against the Holy Covenant. A year later, he tries again to go back and conquer Egypt, um, and it doesn't go well. Because, and verse 30 tells us why. It tells us there are ships of the western coastland that oppose him. And what that really means is it's the beginning of the rise of the Roman Empire, which will overthrow Greece. These are ships from Rome. They come and oppose Antiochus. They stop him from being able to take Egypt. And he is not happy. And on his way back, uh, in his rage, he vents his fury um, on Israel a second time. Verse 31 tells us he desecrates the temple. He abolishes the sacrifices. He sets up the abomination that causes desolation. And history books validate that because they tell us that the suppression of the Jewish religion began on a grand scale in 167 B.C. with Antiochus IV Epiphanes. All religious practices were forbidden by the Jewish people. There were, um, circumcision was forbidden. It was forbidden to for- possess the scriptures. They were no longer able to do sacrifices and feast days under penalty of death. The destruction of the Jewish religion and the Jewish people reached its climax in December of 167 B.C. when there was a statue of Zeus was erected in the temple on the altar and swine were slaughtered to the statue of Zeus on the Lord's temple. On the Lord's altar. Antiochus Epiphanes, in his fury, and probably with the help of some of those demonic representatives that we talked about earlier, tried to put an end to God's chosen people, tried to put an end to the worship of the one true God in 167 BC, before 
the Messiah had an opportunity to come. But let's finish the story as it was foretold to Daniel. Let's read verses 32 through 35. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will come at the appointed time. Even in this dark period of suffering for the nation of Israel, there were true believers. There were those who knew God and held on to their faith. People called them, uh, Gabriel calls them people who know their God in verse 32. I loved that little simple phrase that he used. Um, they remained faithful. They resisted the persecution. And the first and foremost among those who remained faithful and resisted the persecution was a priest by the name of Mattathias, and he had three sons. And Mattathias and his three sons resisted and became known as the Maccabees. Uh, And they founded the Maccabean Revolt against Antiochus and the Syrians. So today when you hear about the Maccabean Revolt and relationship to um, the nation of Israel, it's right here, 167 B.C. They were revolting against uh, that statue of Zeus in their temple. The Maccabees and their followers, uh, and there were many that followed them, some sincere, as we learn in this few verses, and some that weren't sincere. They were just trying to get rid of the Syrian persecution. But the Maccabees and their followers successfully overthrew the Syrian persecution through a series of wildly unlikely military victories uh, between 166 and 164 B.C. And as a result of the Maccabean Revolt, the temple was purified and rededicated in December of 164 B.C. And this revolt and rededication of the temple is now celebrated every year by the Jewish people as Hanukkah. Hanukkah. That's what Hanukkah is all about, the rededication of the temple. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is Romans 8, 28, and it's on your verse sheet, and it says, For we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we see the truth of Romans 8, 28 in these last few verses that we read about uh, in Daniel's prophecy. Although the persecution of Israel in the second century BC preceding the birth of the Messiah, that attempt to destroy the entire Jewish nation and the worship of the one true God uh, was great, Gabriel actually gives Daniel a twofold encouragement in verse 35 as we finish up here. He tells him, first of all, the persecution, although great, is going to end. It's going to run its course um, at God's appointed time. And the second thing that he tells him is not only will the persecution end, um, but the suffering that the faithful endure are going to serve a great purpose. The suffering that the faithful endured during Antiochus and the Maccabean revolt is going to serve to refine and purify them. In God's economy, the suffering of the faithful is never wasted. It's part of his bigger plan for the nation of Israel, just like it's always a part of his bigger plan in our lives also. The struggle against Antiochus, the king of the north, 
served to cleanse the new Jewish nation of sinful practices, and it strengthened their faith as the nation prepared for what? Prepared for the first coming of the Messiah. So all was not lost. It's true that all things work together for good for those who love God and according to his purpose. Next week, we're going to finish up chapter 11, and we are going to talk about far future prophecy that uh, we don't have any history books to look back on, but we have a lot of great prophecies to know about. But I want to finish with just two um, applications for us and what we can learn from Daniel and his response to God as he learned about God's plans for Israel. And the first truth that I think that Daniel teaches us as he receives this final troubling revelation from God at the end of his life, I think he teaches us the value and the importance of God being our first priority, not only for just a season, not until the exiles were free, not just until he was done with his service of Cyrus, but having God as our first priority should be something we do for a lifetime, not for a season. Daniel is a case study in what happens when God is the first priority in your life, all of your life. Now, I have to confess that when I contemplate this a little bit in my life, all of these things run through my head. Is, um, okay, I know keeping God a priority all of my life is the right thing to do, but I have all these other responsibilities. I have a husband. I have children. I have a job. I have this. All of these things that uh, can get in the way of God being the first priority all of my life. But you know what? My heart really tells me the truth. It's not those things that really get in the way of God being a first priority in my life. It's me. I'm the one that gets in the way. I'm the one that wants to be the first priority in my life. Um, Thank goodness Daniel's example shows me the foolishness of my self-centered ways when I put myself first on the priority list in my life. Because if I do that, if I'm my own first priority, I'm never going to have the same response from God that Daniel had. Because Daniel put God first for a lifetime, he was heard, he was valued, he was strengthened, and he was answered. The second thing I learned from Daniel's response uh, to God's plans here at the end of his life is that when I face something difficult, something that as a believer I think, oh, that is even too hard for me to get my mind around. And we all face those every day. We get a cancer diagnosis. We go through a divorce. We lose a job. We have a child that is sick. When I face things that are difficult and unfathomable, my best response to the difficult and troubling things of life is to do exactly what Daniel did, to pursue understanding from God with humility and determination. My first response may be to be angry. It may be to turn away from God. And it may be to simply go my own way. But Daniel teaches me it is never my best response. God was faithful to send Christ to Daniel himself when his response in difficult circumstances was to pursue understanding with humility and determination. And he will be no less faithful to me when that is my first response and best response also. Psalm 145.18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And James 4.8 says, Come near to God and he will come near to you. Let's pray. 
Father, you are a gracious and good God. And it's true that when we pursue you for understanding with humility and understanding that you send Christ to us. And I, um, I love that. Father, thank you for these women and their uh, humble determination to understand your word. I pray that you would answer our prayers and that you would strengthen us. You would encourage us. Um, you would walk along beside us as we try to understand. Thank you for your word, the truth that is is. And I pray your um, blessing on all of these ladies and that the study of your word in this sanctuary would bring you honor. I pray this in the name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.